Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's... No, fuck! (laughs) I was nailing these! Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias, uh, we have Ezra and Sarah in on a, a special Friday morning because uh, the healthcare bill finally came out uh, on a Thursday, just in time for us. But you know what else happened on a Thursday? What did happen? Even bigger news than the healthcare bill, really. Yeah, the healthcare bill. This is, we're probably not even going to discuss the healthcare bill after we get sidetracked here. Uh, Worldly, the first episode of Vox's new foreign policy podcast, where they go through the actually most important stories in the world, not just like, what is happening in the American healthcare system, but will there be, in the first episode, a shooting war between America and Russia in Syria? Uh, I was actually listening to it on the way in. It's both great, and I was very afraid by the end of it. It made me quite uh, uncomfortable. But you can find it wherever you find your podcast, Worldly, uh, with Zach Beecham and Yochi Driesen and Jen Williams, and it is excellent. Yes, you should subscribe. Absolutely. But when you're done scaring yourself about, uh, you know, the world, you might also want to scare yourself about some of the details of the Senate Republican health care bill. I sit on. When you think about the sort of curious timing of this legislation, that was probably what Mitch McConnell's staff was was aiming for because they knew the bill was going to be really good. And so they wanted a detailed breakdown. Yeah, in the absence of a CBO score, they wanted to make sure that people had the opportunity to learn yes. about what it did from the weeds. Right. So, so we want to try to talk about this in an organized way and not just yell. Um, So, you know, the bill has a few main parts, as all these things do. A large tax component that's pretty simple, but but that's important. A very large Medicaid component that's that's very important. But we want to start by talking about what it does with the Affordable Care Act exchanges, uh, because it it keeps them in place, but it also changes them a lot. And to give it some credit, I would say that there's a vision here of what things are supposed to look like, but then maybe a giant missing piece that renders it all unworkable. Yes. Um, Yeah. So I'd say like the TLDR of of the Senate private market reforms is it asks low-income older people to spend more money for worse health insurance. That's kind of like the real time. And like, I'm not the first person to come up with a thought. Um, Larry Levitt from the Kaiser Family Foundation was tweeting about this yesterday. Weeds listeners should follow him. He is a great healthcare source. Um, But what you're really seeing is a ratcheting down of benefits and a ratcheting up of what people are expected to contribute to pay for those benefits. So if you are someone who's, let's say, like 55 on the marketplace, you're earning like $40,000 a year, you are going to be asked to spend more of your paycheck on health insurance. And in return, you'll get a plan with probably a higher deductible and more copayments. Just what Americans want. When when, when I talk to Obamacare and and I say, what don't you like about their plan? They say the deductible is too low. And I wish I could. So so let's just like walk through like some of like what is actually going on there. So the way the Affordable Care Act works, um, you know, two key things to know is that it tethers how much you spend on health insurance to how much you're earning. And it basically says, we think for someone earning $15,000, you should only have to spend 2% of your income on health insurance. And it doesn't matter what the base premium is. We will subsidize it so you only have to spend 2% on like a mid-level plan. You get up to $40,000, you're asked to spend 9% of your income on health insurance. Again, the base premium doesn't really factor in as much. So one of the things you see going on in this bill is they're ratcheting up the amount they want, particularly older people, to pay. So for someone who's, um, you know, in their 60s, like early 60s pre-Medicare, 
and earning like 40000 or so dollars, the cap for how much they are expected to pay, it goes from 9% to 16%, which is like a pretty significant change. I ran the numbers yesterday and we're talking about going up from like $35,000 a year on premiums to 55000 Like that's like a pretty that, significant that's very big, yeah. increase for someone earning $40,000. So that's one big shift is how much you pay. The other side is like what you get. So, and this gets like super wonky, but like, you guys stop me if I need to get out of the weeds at some point. No, I'll um, ask you clarifying questions. Okay, along ask the me way. clarifying questions. So there is a term called actuarial value in health insurance, and this is a, a wonky way of measuring, on average, how much of an how much of an individual's costs does the plan cover, and how much does it ask people to pay out of pocket. So plans with high deductibles tend to have low actuarial values because they expect that the average enrollee will be kicking in a bigger percent of their bills. Under Obamacare, you know, these tax credits, how much you were expected to pay, it was tethered to a mid-level 70% actuarial plan. And so just so I understand this, so when you have a 70% actuarial value plan, what it's saying is that given my expected healthcare costs, the plan I have is going to pay 70% of the cost and through premiums, deductibles, copays, I'll pay the other 30%. Sort of. Um, So you and everyone else in the health (laughs) insurance plan. So it's not saying like you, Ezra, you'll pay 30%. It's saying like if there was a weeds health insurance plan, on average, they think Matt, Ezra, and Sarah will kick in 30% and the insurance company will cover 70%. Gotcha, okay. Because so some people, some people are going to be just stuck in deductible land. Yes. Right? And others will go way over. Yeah, so, so on average, it's going to come So out. it's a pooling thing. So what the Senate bill does is it lowers well, that- bend- Real quick, what yes. is the what are the levels in Obamacare yeah. now? So right now, there are four different levels. There are bronze plans, which have a 60% actuarial value, silver, which is at 70, um, gold at 80, and platinum at 90. And the tax credits are tethered to the silver plan. So remember I was talking earlier that um, Obamacare says for someone earning $15,000, they don't expect them to spend more than 2% of their income on health insurance. That is not for, you know, the platinum plan. That is for the silver plan. So so what the law says is that if you are earning $15,000, we expect you to kick in 2% and you will be able to afford a plan that on average covers 70% of your costs. So that's the Obamacare structure. And so the reason they do that is that when you're doing subsidies, right, you could be in an area where like you're poor and you get X subsidy from the government, but plans are super expensive. And so just getting the same amount in rural Alaska that you get in Southern California just doesn't do you very much good. Yes. Like the theory of Obamacare subsidies is the subsidies guarantee you a certain kind of plan that they think is reasonable health insurance. Yes. And so the Senate bill does this. The House bill actually didn't do this. And this was kind of like a big flaw with the House bill is it said you could live in Alaska, you could live where health insurance is expensive, you could live in an area where it's cheap, you get the same amount of money. So the Senate moves away from that. It moves to income-based tax credits that kind of cap your contribution as a percent of income. But one thing it does is it ratchets down what you actually get. So instead of saying, you kick in 2% of your income, we'll give you a 70% plan. It says, you kick in 2% of your income, we will give you a 58% plan. So lower so, than the lowest in Obamacare Lower, now. yeah. So 60 is the lowest in Obamacare. It goes down to 58. Um, Urban Institute has run some numbers on what a 60% plan. So this is slightly more generous. And they estimate in order to like hit that, if you're an insurance company, you need deductibles around like 6500 for the individuals, 13000 for a family. You'd need pretty significant cost sharing. So, so these are plans, you know, that would near certainly have higher deductibles. Like the thing all Obamacare enrollees I talk to complain about is their deductibles. This would make that a lot worse. So these are insanely high. I just want to say this for a second. Like these are, you're talking about a pretty poor person here. 
and you're saying, we're going to give you a subsidy, you who make whatever, let's say $40,000 a year. It's not incredibly poor, but you know, like your family making $40,000 a year, I'm sorry. You're going to get a plan with a thirteen or fourteen or $15,000 deductible. Go forth, have fun. Right. Well, let's like game this out with some numbers. I yeah. think it's actually helpful. So if you are someone like, say someone who's making $40,000, who's like 62 or something like that. Um, so they are already expected to spend, I did the numbers yesterday, they're in a piece on Vox. I think it's about $5,000 of their income on premiums. On top of that, you're going to layer, since it's an individual, a $6,500 deductible. So if you are someone who is sick, they're essentially asking you to pay like more than a quarter of your income on healthcare. Pre-tax, pre-tax, uh, pre-tax income. <laughs> yeah, pre-tax income. So we're really talking about your actual disposable income. It's very hard to see how one affords a plan. And it's very easy to see how people say, like, fuck that. Like, wh- why would I, like, spend $55,000 a year for a plan that's going to ask me to spend $65,000 more if I actually need health care? Well, surely Here's the Senate a crucial bill, intervention. <laughs> surely the Senate bill has a reason you have to come into the market even so, right? I mean, they, they probably have something, maybe do they just keep the because individual Because these mandate? kind of high-deductible plans, right? I mean, look, it's easy to sort of say, okay, that deductible is so high, it's unreasonable. But I mean, pe- some people get very ill in life. I mean, you can be in a horrifying accident. You could have a terrible cancer case. And if you're very, very sick, I mean, even a plan with this kind of high deductible would be really worth signing up for. So to make it work, but also healthier people have to be in the in the marketplace. Right, yeah. So what, what do they, they do to get solve that problem, in? right? Like they... Oh, guys, I mean, this has some. been discussed a lot for years. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the core okay, topics okay, of Obamacare. <laughs> I wonder what you guys are setting up here. <laughs> so, yeah, so what you guys are getting at is certainly there'd be a way to get the healthy people to buy this plan that, you know, costs a lot of money and isn't very comprehensive coverage. And the answer is no, there is not. So this is like one of the most baffling things to me as I was reading through the Senate bill yesterday is that, as I'm sure many listeners know, the Affordable Care Act has this individual mandate, a penalty if you don't purchase health insurance to get healthy people in the pool. Everyone hates the individual mandate, um, except for architects of healthcare laws who talk about three-legged stools and how important it is to have some kind of forcing mechanism to get people into the market. And there is nothing in this bill to compel someone to buy health insurance. Republicans did want to repeal the individual mandate. I was expecting to see that in the bill, but usually they replace it with something else. The kind of most popular thing that's been floated around so far that was in the House bill was this continuous coverage requirement where if you had a lapse of coverage for three or more months, then you would have to pay higher premiums when you return to the individual market. Can I ask you something about that? Yeah. There was a lot of speculation that continuous coverage uh, provision would not survive yes. the Senate reconciliation process. Is that why it's not there? So so let's wait. We'll get to that in a okay. moment. Because I think there's a number of like theories that I've been discussing with some folks that I think are all interesting theories of why it is not there because it's this huge gaping hole. So the continuous coverage isn't there. There was like a lot of chatter about automatic enrollment, uh, you know, automatically enrolling people into high deductible plans to get those healthy li- healthy lives into the marketplace. But there is nothing. There is nothing to get people to purchase health insurance. And this is like, you know, I was talking to a former um, Republican Senate staffer, someone who used to work for the Senate Finance Committee during the Affordable Care Act debate. And he was saying, this is a recipe for a death spiral. This is someone who does not like Obamacare. This is someone who like thinks Obamacare should be repealed and replaced. But he looks at this and this lack of a continuous coverage or individual mandate or anything to incentivize healthy people into the marketplace. And he says, when you build a market like that, healthy people just decide not to buy coverage until they actually need it. And you make it so easy for people to stay out of the market, which is 
just crazy. You hear a lot of Republicans talking about Obamacare collapsing. Like, this is a recipe for an insurance market collapse. So, so <laughs> go for it. I've heard some, I mean, is it possible that this is just going to get fixed in the, I mean, there's, there's some amendments and, and things like that, right. or, or they'll go do it. Or also that, look, if they get this bill through, Democrats are going to rant and rave for whatever. And then they're going to be able to come back and say, like, okay, we need a bipartisan vote to repair these things. And Democrats have, like, really quadrupled down on the view that, like, sabotaging an existing healthcare system just because you think that if it collapses, you can replace it with something better is, like, the most immoral thing that anybody has ever done. So in the end, they'll be able to throw a few more things in here that Ted Cruz and Mike Lee wouldn't vote for. If it's okay, I want to put a pin in that because I want to, I I think there's a lot of gaming out the politics of this, Mm -hmm. but I want to say a couple more things about just what the vision for the Obamacare exchanges is here. So as Sarah said, at the root of a lot of what is in this bill, uh, different policies that are interlocking and happening at, at different levels of the healthcare system is a vision that poor people should pay more for worse health insurance. Like that, it is a consistent vision throughout the bill. And Sarah mentioned one of the ones I think is really important, which is the re-benchmarking of the subsidies to a 58% plan, to an extremely, extremely high deductible plan right after. I was on Face the Nation with Mitch McConnell a couple months ago, and he said the problems with Obamacare were it left 25 million people uninsured, deductibles were too high, co-pays were too high, and the people were ending up in bad insurance. It was too expensive for them to use. And I thought, that's a good argument. <laughs> like, that is correct, Mitch McConnell. Like you, that, I cannot argue with any of that. And then he's like, here's a bill that makes literally every one of these problems worse. But so it does a couple other things that work in the same direction. I just want to make sure we hit before we move on. So one thing is that it changes, as Sarah said, not just the expected value of the plans that subsidies buy you, but also what counts as an affordable plan. So the percentage of your income that you can spend before you hit an affordability trigger has gone up. It allows states to waiver out of the essential benefits regulation. So currently, if you are offering a plan that is qualified under under the Affordable Care Act, it has to cover things like hospitalization, like pregnancy, like mental health. Now they let states waive those regulations out, which is also a backdoor way of not covering people with pre-existing conditions. Because if you are an insurer in a state where you've been waived out of these regulations, you could say, yeah, these are I, I have these plans. Anybody can buy it. We'll give it for the same price to anybody who signs up. It just doesn't cover anything related to cancer. <laughs> And then people who have a particular concern around cancer care can't buy that plan. They bring down the uh, subsidies. Subsidies currently, you can get them up to 400% of the poverty line. Now it's 350%. And they tilt them a little bit more towards the young than the old. Subsidies right now are income-related. They sort of add in an age dimension and tilt it a little bit more towards the young. So in both dimensions of that, it makes it just harder for older, middle-income people to buy health insurance. There's just a lot happening here. But everything in the bill, like everything in the bill is a vision of, If you are poor, you should pay more for insurance that covers fewer things and has higher deductibles. I just I want to emphasize that because there's been a lot of back and forth on what is a Republican health care vision. And to some of you, this is actually what I thought it was. This is sort of what the Republican health wonk Mm. vision was before all this. Right. It wasn't just repeal and replace. It was like something sort of universal, but with really shitty insurance. And then Republicans spent years complaining about deductibles in Obamacare, years complaining about copays. And like now we see the reveal. Right. Which is. 
They think higher deductibles are good. They think spare plans that maybe don't cover anything you need are fine. And like they're going to build a system which is going to shovel money directly to insurers for plans that people very well may not find they're able to use, that they cannot afford to use or don't cover what they need when they do need to use it. If Republicans had been willing to put this vision on the table in 2009, right? If like this exact law was like the snow grassley plan, it seems like you could have had like a constructive discussion around it. It's weird, right? There was this like political game and and doublespeak where like they didn't want to say this is what they wanted to do. And now here we are and it's what they want to do. Yeah, it's... um. (laughs) So I wanted to circle back to kind of like we were talking about this like lack of continuous coverage and like what this marketplace actually would look like and like some of the theories. Cause I think it actually like fits in to thinking through like what Republicans are trying to do here and what these markets could look like. So I've heard a few theories like floated about this particular thing that I think are helpful to think through. One is they certain they just couldn't get it through the Senate parliamentarians in time. Like they had to leave it out. They like had they promised to get the bill out. I don't really buy that one. Like I think they've been working on this. Another, which is interesting and plausible to me is that they want the insurance industry to say nice things about their bill, and they are using the lack of this as an incentive to get AHIP to say something like mildly positive about this bill. You mean because, like, it's a leverage point. It's a leverage point. I see. Which is, like, weird and crazy. Um, And the third, which is interesting, too, is it could push people towards those waivers you were talking about, where if you don't have a continuous coverage requirement— your market is going to spiral, and one way to keep the sick people out is just to wave out of a lot of benefits. And you really then see this, like, return to something very, very similar to the pre-ACA marketplace, where only the healthy people can get coverage, and the sick people are essentially shut out of coverage. But the idea is, like you were saying, you can't say no to people. There is not—I've seen something floating around saying you can wave out of the um, requirement to provide everyone with health insurance. That is not true. But you can backdoor into it, right? Like, you can, like— Only you can let insurance plans not cover expensive health insurance benefits. And so you could really see that as like a the lack of that provision. Maybe it is intentional because you want to push the market towards less um, comprehensive plans. Can I ask you a question? Could could a state add some kind of continuous coverage requirement? I mean, is is that Mm -hmm. something that would be within the state's like regulatory flexibility? That's a good question. I think want to say yes. States have a lot of sway over how right. they regulate their individual markets. So I think like if you wanted, like, let's say you're any state on the West Coast and like you wanted to try and make this work, you might like layer on some, you might like plus up the subsidies to get to like ACA levels. You might add a continue. You could, you could add a state level mandate if you want to probably, like you could try and preserve that part of right. the you could, law. You could like not waive the benefits. Yes. Add some kind of mandate, deliver state tax dollars. You could even probably like bump up like the 58 actuarial value standard to 70 if you if you want to. But you're going to have to find state money to do all of this. Like you're going to have to like finance this additional part of the expansion. Just add on that. So one thing they do in the bill, and this is it could end up being extremely important, is Obamacare has a section called 1332 waivers. And it's a way that states can, if they're willing to submit a plan that continues to meet Obamacare standards, on how many people are covered, how good the coverage they get is, and how much it costs, uh, you can then remake your system. Now, those waivers are really tough to get for a variety of reasons. I think this was a mistake the Obama administration made, but, but whatever, they were there. The Republican plan opens up the 1332 system 
But what it does is that in addition to making the waivers incredibly easy to get, I'm not even sure they have to be certified by HHS anymore. No, okay. Can I just talk about these, like, some of this waiver? Oh, yeah, let me just okay, give the standards and then because the, you, the, you know the process better than I do. But the, the really important thing they did here was that they do not – this is – I think it's so crazy – so even though what the bill does is it brings down the standards of care that need to be offered, standards of insurance coverage that need to be offered, to get a waiver, you don't need to meet that. You no longer need to have as many people covered as the Senate bill would have, nor do you have to have them covered with as good insurance as the Senate bill offers, even though that insurance is already quite bad. The only thing you need to do is not increase the deficit. Right. And so that's how that's that's <laughs> how you wave out of the essential health benefits is through that yeah. process. Um, and you can wave out of some other things, too. You can wave out of the, I think, cost-sharing reduction subsidies. There's a whole list in the Affordable Care Act of the stuff you can get out of. And one of the kind of interesting changes they make, and it's really hard to spot because you have to, like, like, I had my, like, copy of the Affordable Care Act out to, like, figure out how this all relates because they're changing, like, one word here and there. Can I just say that watching Sarah Cliff on one of these days is like an amazing thing. It's like copies of the original <laughs> bills and the new bills, and it's, oh it's a very impressive my box thing. Highlighters. But one of the things they say is that the original language is the secretary may approve a waiver if it meets all these requirements, Ezra was outlining. The Senate bill says a secretary shall approve the waiver unless it increases the deficit. So unless the deficit is going up, like the secretary is directed to like say yes to these waivers. The waivers can be submitted by a governor. They don't have to be approved by a state legislature. Like, one person could submit this waiver and, like, change the entire insurance market. It's just really a tool to do, like, so much in these markets. And you could use it very—I think it would actually be used quite widespread because it'd be hard to run a functional insurance market with this, like, combination of guaranteed issue and no push to get people in the market. But that's why the deficit constraint is big, right? Because— if you don't have a waiver, you're going to have no market. So when you have no market, you're not actually drawing any subsidies. So if you try to use the waivers to make the market work, you're going to increase the deficit. I don't know if you'd get more. That's a good question. Because people but would buy the insurance. I would also that. keep in mind, like, if the if this does go into effect, like, these waivers can start coming in in 2018, and it's really up to, like, the Trump HHS to decide, does this increase the deficit or not? Well, sure. So I think, like, a lot of it falls to, like, the regulatory powers of the federal government and, and who controls it. Yes. But we should talk about Medicaid. We should talk about Medicaid. Because I think Matt has some, some fiery thoughts on Medicaid. It's a large cut to Medicaid. <laughs> no, I mean, look, from the beginning— discussion of the Affordable Care Act has been dominated by discussion of the ACA exchanges, right? The Obama people, for whatever reason, they were really proud of this little baby that they that they birthed. And then it kind of, everybody was really unhappy with it. Their website didn't work. The deductibles were really high. It turned out that this like, we'll stick everyone in high deductible plans and that'll restrain costs, did not really win them the like applause that they wanted. But they also had in the law a really big expansion of Medicaid. Um, That's done like most of the coverage increase. It has uh, impacted a a huge number of, of very vulnerable people. And critically, it hasn't been afflicted by any of the, like, quote-unquote, Obamacare problems, right? Like, since the initial day that they hit go on the website, there have been, like, problems, quote-unquote. And, like, none of those are Medicaid problems. It's totally fine, right? Like, when Donald Trump says Obamacare is dead, if you want to just, like, agree with him about all his factual claims— every marketplace, every county, they're all going to evaporate. Medicaid is fine, right? So, 
nothing that any Republican has said about Obamacare over the past years has any applicability at all to Medicaid. You can agree with them about all of their claims, about everything, and there is no reason to change Medicaid. So what they do in their bill is— I'd note one thing there. Medicaid is also much more popular than the Affordable Care Act itself. Very so popular. polling it, today, the Affordable Care Act is at 55%, which is very popular for the Affordable Care Act. Medicaid is at 74 Yes, and, and when you actually talk to the people who use the programs, um, we just did a poll with SurveyMonkey, and you find people who are on Medicaid, they like their coverage— much more than people on the marketplaces. And it, it, like, it makes, I think there was a view going into this, like, oh, Medicaid patients can't get into doctors. You know, they, they aren't going to like their coverage. It turns out it's much more popular. People are okay with slightly less doctor choice when they don't have like a giant deductible as part of their right. plan. So people on Medicaid like Medicaid. The public as a whole supports Medicaid. The problems with Affordable Care Act implementation do not impact Medicaid. The president of the United States repeatedly, in a Republican Party primary, promised not to cut Medicaid. So they've come up with a bill that far and away its largest fiscal impact is cutting Medicaid. And it cuts Medicaid not just to where it was before the Affordable Care Act, but much, much, much lower than it ever was before then. And it is by far the biggest rollback of the welfare state in American history. I mean, the the amount of dollars involved in this dwarfs the, the 96 welfare reform. And that 96 welfare reform bill, whatever you think about it, uh, AFDC was very unpopular. It had become a real political albatross. So the reason that there was a bipartisan push to cut that program is that the program was unpopular. Medicaid, very popular, polls well. I mean, again, Bill Clinton promised to reform welfare, which is one reason why he did it. Donald Trump promised not to do this. How do the Medicaid cuts work? Before you get too deep into that, because they're somewhat complicated. Well, there's a very complicated song and dance around the expansion benefits that I'm going to have to let Sarah explain because I don't understand it. But then there's a long-term cut to everybody where they— chunk the population into a few different categories. You have like Medicaid kids, you have Medicaid old people, you have Medicaid disabled. And I think pregnant women is the fourth category. And so then for each category, you then say, instead of if you're eligible, we will pay your costs according to the program rules, they say, you know, a a person of this type is worth X dollars and a kid is worth a smaller amount, disabled person, a higher amount. And so you have a per capita cap on spending. That's how the House bill also worked. Then the per capita cap has to grow over time because of, you know, inflation and and life and stuff. And so the House bill tried to peg this to the Consumer Price Index's medical care subcomponent, which I, I think there's some technical problems with that idea. But it's an idea, I, I think, that you can, if you wanted to explain in English language terms what they're trying to do, what they're trying to say is that per person Medicaid spending should not grow faster than overall healthcare spending. That was the, the House bill. And I think there's important questions to whether it would really work. But what they're doing in the Senate bill is saying that per person Medicaid spending has to grow much slower than the growth of overall medical care costs. So everybody, but beginning in a certain year, right? Like it's a weird bait and switch thing where they they use the house growth rate for the first 
for some years. Yeah, and then they I, until it, to slower. It, it, it comes in in I think twenty twenty four or twenty twenty three. It's far enough out that it like I think it's twenty twenty five. I'm it, not wrong. It raises the prognosticators' question of like, well, maybe this will never happen. But take them at their word, right? You assume it's going to happen. You're going to start seeing that every year the amount of money available to cover a given sick person grows by a lesser amount than the cost of getting medical care for a person. The exact consequences of that for state governments are a little hard to game out. It's possible that more liberal states will kick in the extra money themselves and will cover what it costs to take care of sick people. It's possible that other states will have to resort to some kind of gaming of the system to to work it out. Uh, What's likely is that you'll see trade-offs within the kinds of groups, right? So some elderly people who need long-term care are 66, and some elderly people who need long-term care are 104. The age difference between a 66-year-old and a 104-year-old is, is actually quite large. Anyone who can, I can't do math, um, but, it's a, but it's a large number of years. To simply say that they're all senior citizens is a little facile. Um, if you're getting the same amount of money for all of them, you're going to have to try to you know, do something to avoid covering the high-cost people. Disability, right, is a, that's a broad categorization of people. The actual healthcare needs that they have are, are very, very different. And you'll be squeezing each group each and every year, giving an inadequate amount of money to cover everybody's medical costs. So you're going to have to either dump the people with the least objective need because you're trying to be humanitarian or find a way to dump the people with the highest need because it's the only way to make make the math work. But if you took it seriously, and I think we should because TANF, which was the the replacement for uh, the old welfare, was set up in a, in a similar kind of way where its growth was not adequate. They have no inflation adjustment at all. And I think that if you had asked, you know, sort of serious, quote unquote, welfare reformers at the time, they would have said, well, you know, I mean, like Congress is going to revisit this, uh, you know, look at whatever else. But it turned out that no, right, that like once Congress had decided that just like not taking care of what low income single mothers needed in terms of cash assistance was okay, they just weren't taken care of, right? And if we go down this road, if you can just say, look, we're not going to cover the kind of people in Medicaid in in an adequate way, and you get away with it politically, like, I I don't see why it won't just run on autopilot. And, you know, 2025, that's a a ways off. But, like, the impact, steadily, cumulative, year after year after year of, like, if the worldwide price of corn falls— the consumer price index will fall and Medicaid will be cut in response, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't, there's no, there's no reason to do it, right? The only thing you know for sure about CPI is that it will not grow as fast as medical costs. Yeah, and this is a really revealing part of the Republican bill because it doesn't really have much to do with the Affordable Care Act one way or another. This is not, there is a part that's about repealing Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion, which basically it moves a little slower than the House bill. It ratchets down the match beginning in 2021. One. One. Okay, there you go. 2021. It kind of ratchets down the match. Right now, states get a 95% match, um, which is great. The federal government kicks in 95%. States have to pay 5%. It's a very favorable amount. Um, essentially, what the Senate bill would do is ratchet that back, kind of decreasing it by 5 or 10% each year until in 2024. It is the same match rate as the rest of the Medicaid program. Um, And one of the ways I've heard Republican legislators describe this and saying, look, we're making a huge concession. We're letting states cover these people on their Medicaid expansion. They just have to cover them at the same match rate as everybody else. 
that is not a great argument to me because states covered these people before. This is not like some new feature of the Medicaid program. States through waivers could could decide to cover these childless adults. They would just have to do so with this lower match rate. And most states decided, well, we can't afford that with our budget. So they just skip this. Could I just one Philip on this? Because you and I, I think, went through this together. Do you remember when we were covering Medicaid expansion rollout? And so we would talk to these Republicans who ran Medicaid in red states. They would be like, why are you not taking all this free money? And they'd say, well, we don't believe the federal government. We think one day the federal government is going to take this 100% or 95% match and like take it away. We're like, well, that doesn't seem very, I mean, why would Democrats do that? They're like, well, you know, you can't trust Democrats. And so they didn't take this money. And then Republicans are doing the thing they said states needed to worry about Democrats doing, which is why they couldn't take the Medicaid money. Like, the whole fucking thing is so bananas. Yeah. Like, they like this was why they didn't take it. Right. Like, and it's true. It happened. It's just they were like, you shouldn't take it because later we are going to take it away. Never said that. Right. Um, but that part, if you're repealing Obamacare, like, okay, like you repeal yeah, the Medicaid expansion, you say like, it's too much federal government spending. The cuts to Medicaid in general seem like they will be very severe and they just aren't really part of repealing. Like you could repeal Obamacare without making these changes. And these cuts really seem there to finance a very large tax cut for wealthier Americans. One of probably the most stunning chart I've seen on the Republican health care efforts. It came from the, kind of going to mix up the piece, Center for Budget Policy Priorities. Okay. Okay. Center for Budget Policy Priorities. Um, They looked at the size of the tax cut for the wealthiest 400 Americans in the Republican repeal bill. This was in the House bill, but it it should be pretty similar in the Senate. And they found that the um, wealthiest 400 American families would get a tax cut that would require cutting the federal spending on Medicaid expansion in four states. So this is a Medicaid expansion that's covering 726,000 people in Arkansas, Alaska, I think Nevada, Nevada, and West Virginia are the four states. Yeah. So those four states, 726,000 people would lose Medicaid expansion, and 400 extremely wealthy families would get a tax cut. Great businesses are built on great talent, uh, but great talent is hard to find, and that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. Uh, ZipRecruiter is not just like a million other websites that are out there. Uh, ZipRecruiter is different. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. What's really important, what's really different is their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's what makes them different. Uh, Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. That's why they've got Recruiter in the name. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. So there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Uh, So find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Uh, So right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. We'll get credit. You'll get free job postings. They think you're going to find it to be, like, so good so amazing that you'll use it again and again and pay them eventually. Uh, so that's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One thing that I think is important on how they're doing the Medicaid cutback, 
This is like a, a weird thing that happened in the Affordable Care Act. So there's a Supreme Court case that made it possible for states to refuse a Medicaid expansion. Because Democrats did not foreseen that happening, subsidies do not trigger until you're over, I think it's 133% of the poverty line. Is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So in states- Oh, sorry, 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah. In states that did not accept the Medicaid expansion, like Texas or Florida- Underneath 100% of the poverty line, you get nothing. You don't get Medicaid and you also don't get subsidies. Mm-hmm. So what Republicans are doing here, they actually do change this. So they they make it – so the subsidies only go up to 350%, but they begin at 0%. Yes. So you begin to get subsidies as soon as – you know at every level of the – at underneath the poverty line. And so what they're trying to do here is not just repeal the Medicaid expansion in the sense of like some states don't take it. They're trying to actually have all those people, very poor people, go onto the exchanges, get subsidies for this shittier insurance, and and go forward that way. Um, I I, want to note that because I think this is a very big part of what some Republicans really like about the plan. Like uh, Ovik Roy, who is a Republican healthcare wonk, has been, was very critical of the House bill, loves the Senate bill, said it'd be like the greatest policy achievement of a Republican Congress in his lifetime. I'm going to have him on my podcast in in a week or two, and we're going to talk this through. But I think that's a big part of what he likes. A lot of Republicans do not like Medicaid, these big government programs. They want to put people into private insurance. They want them to have less health insurance coverage overall. They have to pay more. They have to shop more. And so this is taking people who are very poor, who are on a very comprehensive health insurance plan with basically no co-pays, basically no cost sharing. No deductible. No deductible. Moving them over to health insurance plans with a lot more cost sharing, a lot more co-pays. Now, there are things within the bill that, in theory, cap your out-of-pocket, but those subsidies, as I understand this bill, end in 2019 anyway. Yes. So you're moving people who are quite poor from something where they really do get health insurance that they can use to something where they really may not be able to use the health insurance that they get. Right. So again, like these are people like, just to bring some numbers to this, who are earning maybe like $9,000 a year and being asked to put 2% of their income to the premiums, which is like not a giant amount, but also a lot. Like when you're trying to like balance whatever's left over after taxes of $9,000, and then you have the $6,000 deductible on the other end that it's like, why are you even buying? Like, what is the point? Yes. You're, you're not going to be able to afford anything. So we're talking about some pretty high deductibles that would be coupled with some low incomes. Like, there is like a fund in the Senate bill. It's like patient stabilization fund. It's actually much smaller than the one that was in the House bill that is meant to kind of help states figure out how to like help people like this, help sicker people. But it's no guarantee. Like, each state can decide what they want to do with that money, how they want to, like, set up their markets. They could just use it for, like, you know, the super, super sick people who would spend a lot of money very quickly because medical care is quite expensive. It's a very high deductible plan when you put it in the context of what the people who are, what the people who are enrolling in it would would be earning. I mean, part of the backdrop here is conservatives appear to me to have persuaded themselves on the basis of an Oregon study that doesn't say this, that Medicaid provides no value whatsoever to its beneficiaries, and so that therefore to replace Medicaid with like a can of soda (laughs) would be a huge win, which is true, because if you had something that had no value, then anything would be better than it. So if it were true that that was the conclusion of the research base on Medicaid, this would sort of make sense. Though that isn't what those studies say. Even if you if you take them at, at face value, Medicaid has financial value, right? I, I mean, that's that's an important 
element of this, right? So the the skeptics case against Medicaid is like they did this one experiment in Oregon and in a relatively small sample over a relatively small time horizon, they could not show uh, concrete improvements in physical health, but that the people who got the Medicaid were still financially much better off. And mentally better and, off. And then consequently, because they weren't skipping what they thought was needed care. And, and if you step back, I mean, again, the, the question about the physical health outcomes is important and, and should be studied more, and, and other studies have different results. But if you think about your own life, um, I've been to the doctor a bunch of times in my life. I have received some medical treatments. I think the odds are pretty overwhelming that if I had never received those treatments, I would still be alive and well today. I've never been like that seriously sick. Um, at the same time, the fact that I didn't bankrupt myself uh, getting those treatments is nice. And the fact that I wasn't sitting around stewing, like, oh my God, I'm sick, I feel horrible, and I'm not able to go to the doctor to get it checked out. Like, I, it would feel awful I, to be in a situation where, like, you cannot get your medical problems diagnosed. To say that there is no value of going to the doctor, to have the doctor tell you, you know what? I know that you feel bad, Matt, but you don't have cancer. You aren't dying. You're going to feel really better in six days. I think that's crazy. Like, everybody who knows, like, if your kid is sick, you want the doctor to check him out. And if the doctor's like, it's okay, that's great. That's, like, what they're there for. I, I think this is all true, but I, I do not. I, I have covered these studies in extremely minute detail, and I don't want to give this much ground on, on this. The, these are good studies. Kate, Kate Baker, Amy Finkelstein. Finkelstein, yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're interesting. They're randomized. They're very good study design. They did not have enough people in them to find some of the things that people wanted to find, which Baker and Finkelstein will be the first to tell you. We have a lot of studies about Medicaid. And the ones that have very large designs, like a randomized one that looked at, I think, Massachusetts, found very significant increases um, in prevention of unnecessary death from expanding Medicaid into states. Like, we found in these studies, what I think is so interesting about these studies, and I recognize this down a little bit of an alley, we could do a whole show on this topic easily, but these studies, what I think was a theory, when you ask people what the mechanism was by which Medicaid maybe didn't help people, it's like they can't get doctors, right? That's what it would have been. But actually, these studies showed Medicaid worked very well as health insurance. They did get doctors. They did increase the amount of health insurance they got. They did increase preventive care they got. They did everything you would expect. When, when you get health insurance for your employer— People on Medicaid, they do the same stuff. 76% of doctors or whatever it is mm -hmm. accept it. It worked as health insurance. So then there's questions of how much does health insurance work to increase health and on what time frame. I think this stuff is very interesting. We have not studied since the RAND experiments in the 70s private health insurance on this level. It's possible no health insurance works at all, but nobody seems to actually believe that. But from what we can tell— we think that there is good experimental evidence that when you go to the doctor and you get prescribed medicines, those medicines work. We know that Medicaid, like private health insurance, gets you into the doctor and allows you to get those medicines. And there is nothing in these studies, I think, that should make you think that Medicaid does not improve people's health over significant time periods. Now, might all health insurance not be as effective as we think it is? I totally buy that. But there's not a 
posited mechanism at this point that makes any sense or fits with the research by which Medicaid would not be doing that. 100% agree there's this weird thing where Medicaid is worthless in the eyes of many conservatives, despite the fact that people love being on it. It appears to work very well as health insurance, and we seem to think as a society that going to the doctor makes you healthier. But if there's a breakdown in that chain, it is in the final link, and it is affecting all of us. It's not some weird Medicaid thing. I have strong views on this. <laughs> but wait, but anyway, it's a long question, but this is all to say, like, this is, the Senate bill, it's hard to figure, like, what are you supposed to do, right, if you're below 100% of the poverty line with a high deductible health insurance plan? And like, I, I don't- Well, I think I, you just don't buy insurance then, right? Like, you, you go back to what the status quo was before the Affordable Care Act, where, because why would you spend, you know, let's say, what, what is like 2% of like a- Post, I don't know, like like you're, we're still asking you to kick in probably like at least like ten or fifteen dollars a month to to buy your premium, and like why use that money when you could spend it on something else when this health insurance product seems not valuable. Right, I but think I you guess- need to back out to an old like what we would have said was a conservative healthcare theory before the last couple of years, which is like people should get catastrophic care. Right that that was like that was a poll in this debate in the sort of wonky debate like. Mm-hmm. Democrats believe that people should get, like, health insurance. Yes. Conservatives believe that there should be this thing that, like, there was, like, a, a common argument that health insurance isn't real insurance because it's not about the unexpected. You're paying routine costs. Like, you know you're going to get an annual physical exam and you know you get colds and whatever else. And that insurance should be for real, gigantic. You get hit by a car. You get shot. You get cancer. You get, you know, you have heart issues. Something unexpected. Huge. It protects you from total financial ruin. And I think this is a sort of return to that argument. It turned out that most conservatives did just didn't want a big health insurance system at all. And so for a while that, you know, like the sort of wonky side of this debate like fell out on the right. But I think this is, you know, one reason you've seen some of the Republican health care wonks, although not that many of them, be more embracing the Senate plan is that it tracks that older argument Wait, a little but, bit better. But what's different is that this bill doesn't actually seem to get people the catastrophic insurance. I mean, I, I could sort of see the idea that like, well, okay, we're going to have just like a taxpayer financed catastrophic insurance plan for everybody. And everybody's just going to get, I don't know, call it a $9,000 deductible plan. And you'd be like, what? That's terrible. And like, then, you know, decent employers and stuff would give you better insurance. But we would say, okay, here's just like a baseline floor that everybody has. That is our answer to like the liberal complaint about like, well, what if you get sick? You know, is everyone gets this catastrophic plan. But what they're offering here is the opportunity to buy a catastrophic plan yes. to people who don't have any money. So I just don't understand what what is supposed. I mean, this you is what's right. out a flaw. <laughs> right, and this is like where there's like this argument about auto enrollment. Like, what if we just signed everyone up for like a high deductible plan that is equal to the size of the tax credit, where instead of like asking people to pay two percent, we ask them to pay zero percent, and like they're in this plan, it's better than nothing. But this isn't that theory. And you know, one of the other things that often got kicked around in those debates, like a feature of the Cassidy Collins plan. Would also, I think one of the other kind of key tenets of like conservative healthcare thinking is letting people really shop and like decide and make good decisions about when they go to the doctor and which doctor is less expensive. And there was, you know, some component to the Cassidy Collins where low income people would get a pre stocked HSA where they would get like some amount of money and they were expected to be like good, smart consumers about how to use it. And you can, 
I think you would need to make some big, big changes to transparency and healthcare pricing for that kind of plan to work. But like, it could, I don't know, like you could do something like that. But that isn't even there. There's like, what you were saying, Ezra, is that like the vision is people get health insurance to protect them from financial ruin, but the insurance in the Senate plan like is not that. Like most people don't have the savings, particularly if you're low income, to, you know, get hit by a bus, have your you know, deductible kick in at $6,000 and like still come out of that and like, okay, financial Absolutely. shape. I think it's worth, you know, stepping out of this and, and asking, it's like, what's the conservative position on mass transit, right? And so if you go to like a federal, you know, uh, surface transportation bill, they'll be saying, well, you know, we shouldn't be taking this gas tax money and giving it to cities for mass transit programs because it's not like a real project of national significance. Uh, we don't believe in climate change, blah, blah, blah. So that's fine. So then you go down to state government and it's like, well, we don't want to waste money on these like elaborate streetcar programs. Like there's the bus, so that's cheap. But then when you look at like when conservatives have political power over city governments, they also want to cut funding for the bus. And then if you ask them, it's like, well, what's the solution for poor people who need to get to work? They should have more money so they can buy a car. You know what I mean? And (laughs) an interesting thing about the health policy debate is it's become so dominant in Washington that there is this huge cottage industry of conservative health policy wonks who put up this kind of like Potemkin policy apparatus, but the conservative view of like what poor people should do about getting to work is that they shouldn't be helped by the government at all. And the conservative view about what poor people should do about getting higher education is they shouldn't be helped at all. The conservative view about what poor people should do about needing food. There's conservative support for Pell Grants and stuff. Look, Paul Ryan's budgets that they've all voted for cut Pell Grants, that cut food stamps, right? I mean, they... Yeah, it's very, it's much lower. It's certainly not sufficient. I agree with you. You know what I mean? There's, they don't think that it's the government's business to help poor people. And they will... Housing, I think, is a very good example. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and they will come up with different kinds of ideas and sometimes useful ones. I mean, I think the move that Milton Friedman inspired in the 70s away from having the federal government finance publicly owned housing units to a more market-friendly idea of giving people housing vouchers, that was a good, you know, intellectual contribution to the debate. But the practical political upshot wasn't conservatives were like, aha, now we have a great solution to housing, so we'll fund Section 8 vouchers generously. They want to cut it. They want to cut it. And because they want to cut all kinds of programs, they will embrace lots of criticisms of the status quo. And sometimes those criticisms are correct and they're enlightening and you can learn from them and you can use them to develop better things. But you see that like at the bottom of this healthcare stack, there's like nothing. It's like you have $9,000 and you're getting a plan with a $6,000 deductible. Ha ha ha. You you should have been richer, right? Like there's no, there's no like real idea here because there's no real idea at the bottom of anything. And I think at that point, you have to talk about the tax provisions of the bill. You do. I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's in, it's inescapable at that point. There is a lot You've of trapped us. There is a lot of help in this bill for manufacturers of medical devices and a handful of other uh, tanning in, salons, insurance companies, you know, businesses here. that had taxes loaded onto them. But there's also a 3.8 percent tax on net investment income earned by individuals who make over $200,000 a year and households who make over $250,000 a year. That's like 40% of the tax cutting that's in this bill. 
And for the vast majority of Americans, you get no money, right? I mean, that, that's only 40% of it. I thought it was higher. No, no. Where There's the a bunch more. We have like the insurance tax, the hospital tax. It's just like they add up they to, add like, up to like the other. There's also the, um, what's the, there's another one on wealthy people well, so, too, right? So, so there's the 0.8% uh, Medicare surtax, which basically they mm-hmm. put Right. All investment income subject to this 0.8% tax. So in practice, a you know, person making $50,000, $60,000 a year has only a trivial quantity of investment income, if any. But you can't say that, like, literally only rich people benefit from this. The vast majority of the monetary benefit of that tax cut accrues to the kind of wealthy people who are pulling down multi-million dollar capital gains. But some middle-class people at least... If you're a middle-class person, over the course of your life, in at least some years, you will probably have investment income. But the 3.8% tax only falls on people at 200 or, or 250,000. And I think it's worth saying, because we saw this in the in the special elections, there's this like construct of like areas where Democrats might want to put forward populism and areas that are more affluent, where they might shy away from that. But in the richest congressional district in the country— the median household income is less than half of the cutoff point for this net investment income tax, right? So there's no place in America where, like, the typical— What's the cutoff again? uh, $250,000 for for a household. So there's no place in America where the typical person comes even close to benefiting from this provision. And again, if you have $250,001, you're paying three cents in tax on this, right? But if you're pulling down $10 million from your hedge fund, and if you're taking that income as capital gains income to avoid paying income tax on it, you're getting a huge sum of, of money off of this tax cut. And that is like an idea that is defensible, but it is like at the core of this, right? They're pitting a very sharp trade-off between the financial interests of a, a really quite small number of very wealthy people and a very large number of, of low-income people. And when you think like through like where this goes next week, like I think what we're going to see is a bill that causes millions of we'll get the CBO score expected. Monday or Tuesday, um, a vote is still on the docket for Thursday, but we'll see if, like, they are getting to the place where the Republicans have enough votes for this. But, you know, what you expect to see in this CBO report next week will probably be pretty similar to what we saw in the reports on the House bill, where you see millions of people losing coverage, um, a big tax cut, and a lot less money going towards health insurance expansion programs. It's hard for me to game out at this point. Like, is it the same as the House bill, the coverage loss? Is it less? It sounds like it will probably be a little bit less, but without this continuous coverage thing, like, I have no idea what to expect. Yeah, the only Um, thing that makes it a little bit less is I would expect that because they give the subsidies to states that don't have Medicaid, you could see coverage mm -hmm. boosting there. Yeah, so you could see, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, all the CBO wizards are doing whatever it is that they do right now, and, like, we will get their answers. But there's so many, there's a lot of things, you know, for the, as much as, like, a lot of the structural parts are similar, there are also some differences with the Senate bill that we've been talking through, and some of them raise coverage, some of them lower coverage. My, like, hunch is it'll be, like, coverage loss that's, like, slightly less than the House bill. The House bill is $23 million. Like, maybe you see, like, 20 million or 19 or 18. I don't know what number it'll end up being. And it'll be interesting to see how senators discuss that if it is framed at like, look, we took this bill and we improved it. 
um, or how they, you know, how senators who have been voicing concerns about coverage cuts, how that factors into their debate. I'm very concerned that the monkeying with the Medicaid windows is going to get them a much better CBO score, even though the Medicare cuts in the long run are much, much higher, and that they're going to be able to exploit the sort of news industry's bias toward newness into getting the story to be, oh, this is, preserves much more coverage gains. Right. Like that. you saw one tweet last time. You USA Today tweeted oh, with the funny, new yeah. CBO report, like new House bill covers one million more people <laughs> or like some absurd reading. So I think you're definitely right that that is like something to exploit. I am curious. They have so far in the reports been very skeptical that states will stick with Medicaid expansion if the match drops. I don't know how they, and I think the 10-year budget window actually cuts against Republicans here because you have the match like completely phased out by 2024 and you're going to a 2026 budget window. And at least in the last reports, they show this like big, big drop when you kind of go from like the match to no match. It'll probably be a slower drop in this report because it's a phase out, but I actually don't think they're going to get, you know, maybe on the- um, Well, I just mean it's the the impact of making the per capita caps so much more drastic- Right. is not really going to show up yeah, within two years. Yeah, there's the, there's the long-term stuff for sure. But I, I do just want to—I assume this would be a much better CBO score because the, the word was that they were sort of talking to CBO, and maybe it will be. But I'm looking at this bill. It has—I mean, CBO—one of the criticisms people make of CBO is that they're overly bought into the individual mandate, continuous coverage stuff. Not having anything like that, plus this kind of move down to 58%. Where CBO has it is clearly something in CBO's models that people will often not buy insurance that has a high deductible because they don't think it is worth it. I don't see how this doesn't have a huge coverage loss. And you're totally right. It's like it could get on to 18 million people lose coverage, and like some really dumb reporters are like six million more people than the. But I think overall, you know, I actually think you're getting to the law of big enough numbers that. The public, like when you're just talking about it, it's like 18 million people losing health insurance. Like nobody's like, oh, well, that is a lot better than 20. For like, this, no, it, this is going to look bad. Like this is going to be bad. And they have not built support. Well, I was talking to a Republican who's involved in, in health care, like very involved in health care. And he was saying that he thought Mitch McConnell's secret health care bill strategy was a very bad idea. And his argument was that then this bill is going to come out. And nobody will be ready for what's wrong with it. Like the Republicans are not going to be ready when they start hearing the things that it does not do well. Because there will not have been this like effort and this long thing of like going through the trade-offs. And we made this decision because if you do it the other way, it's worse for these other reasons. And this is going to come out. And I think that the Republicans just have not looked at this yet. And they're not going to have very long to. SIBA is going to come out on Monday or Tuesday. There's going to be a lot of really bad stuff in that. Like, you can just look at this bill and it's like, there are going to be paragraphs in that report that are devastating. And I just don't think that, I mean, we'll see. It's dumb for me to make a prediction on this, but I would be very surprised if we get a vote next week. I I think they're going to have to do more work. And I think that Mitch McConnell might just have constructed a thing where it's like, he will make the concession of not having a vote next week and then add some not that big concessions and then be like, oh, this bill's better. But I think that I think we've got a couple cycles of this left to go. I just feel like, though, senators, I think, know how to legislate when they want to and that the broad contours of this whole effort, right, enormous tax cut for high income people with lots of investment income, big long term cuts in Medicaid spending 
are something that you can look around if you represent West Virginia, if you represent Nevada, if you represent Maine, and say, I mean, they should know facts. Like, does Maine have an above or below average number of billionaires in it? Right? It's below. Does Maine have an above or below average number of rural hospitals? It's above. And so you can say to yourself, like, Mitch McConnell, like, do I want to vote for legislation that delivers a huge tax cut to billionaires and a huge blow to rural hospitals? And, like, you got to decide. Like, you do or you don't. And there was this interesting moment where, like, a bunch of senators from low-income Medicaid expansion states, from Louisiana, from Arkansas, from West Virginia, were talking like they didn't want to do that. And then— It stopped, right? Somewhere in the process, the thing that they learned in the process was that the only way to make the giant tax cut work was to do the giant Medicaid cut. And they decided to get on board for it. And everything else that seems to have been happening since then is a kind of haggling about the details, right? But there really was this moment where you were hearing from Tom Cotton, you were hearing from Bill Cassidy, you were hearing from Susan Collins, you were hearing from Rob Portman. Like, maybe we don't want a giant Medicaid cut. But that's all completely stopped, right? Right. And I think they clearly do want a giant Medicaid cut. And at that point, I mean, the details matter, but there's sometimes I hear about something like, like Trump's air traffic control privatization. And it's like, The devil's in the details. Like, it actually matters what the specifics are. The specifics matter here, but, like, they sort of don't matter. It's a tax cut to cut Right, and I think there's also this story that Republican legislators are telling themselves, because I talked to a Republican legislator about this yesterday, um, who had a really interesting description of what this person tells um, their staff when they get all these angry phone calls. You know, this person said, you know, at the end of a long day, we've gotten all these angry phone calls. And I tell my staff, you know, we won. It's okay. Like, these are the these are the people who lost and they're angry because they lost. But like, remember, just six months ago, we were the ones who won the election and that this person made the argument. This is a member, Republican member of Congress, that at the end of the day, it is going to be really, really hard not to vote for this thing that they kept promising to vote for. But to be clear, this is not what they promised. (laughs) Right. No, I agree with you. But hold on. But I think this is a very compelling dynamic that was way, way, way stronger in the House process than I ever expected. And I, I, I agree, you know, yes, they promised lower deductibles. And yes, they promised like better health insurance, but like the high level thing they promised was like repeal and replace Obamacare. And this is the thing that'll be covered by the press as repeal and replace Obamacare. And and most people, you know, I think one story you can tell yourself is that at the end of the day, most of your constituents won't be affected by this. You know, most of them are not on the Affordable Care Act. There's not a lot of good evidence that like changes to benefit programs actually affect how people vote. Like the, the link seems to be weak. It's more about like other people getting angry about seeing those benefits cut, not the beneficiaries themselves. But I think there's a story Republican legislators are telling themselves that we promised to do this and, like, this isn't the bill we wanted, but this is, like, the path we have chosen and, like, we just have to stick to our guns and we don't want to be the one who's, like, stopping this this plan from moving forward. I agree with that analysis. But, like, again, if any Republicans are listening to this, like, keep in mind, you promised— lower deductibles and you're delivering higher deductibles. You promised lower co-payments and you're delivering higher co-payments. Trump promised not to cut Medicaid and he's cutting Medicaid. I think if you parse your own bullshit, you were promising normal people who don't even get Obamacare benefits 
that they would get lower premiums. And your bill doesn't do that at all. So, like, it's fine to play this, like, con job where you pass a bill that violates every promise that you've ever made to every kind of American about every aspect of their health care in order to deliver a multi-billion dollar tax cut to millionaires. Fair enough, I guess. But, like, don't. Don't tell yourself that you have to do it to keep a promise that you made. Like, that's insane. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, with that, uh, you know, we're going to say goodbye. But if, if you want to uh, listen to something less uh, sort of depressing and, and rage-inducing, uh, I think you're interesting with Tom Vanderwerf. is is always a great podcast on pop culture. Uh, the guest this week is critic Alan Seppenwald. Uh, it's really great to hear these sort of two great critical minds uh, talking together about, you know, everything that's out there. Uh, of course, join us in, in the Weeds Facebook group if you want to uh, continue the discussion here. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Peter Leonard for producing. And we will see you next week.